if you burn out, the movement burns out. If you burn out, the movement burns out. And whether you're a leader or you're just getting started, it's important to think about ways to not just say no to things, but actually to plan your life and design your life in a sustainable way. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Tanya Tarr, former longtime progressive operative and behavioral scientist who now writes for Forbes and consults around organizational burnout and adaptive leadership and how to build stronger organizations. She's also an influential voice on gender equality and diversity. I asked Tanya about her career and her current work and how her insights might apply to the progressive movement these days. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Tanya Tarr with Cultivated Insights. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Tanya, would you mind introducing yourself, giving me a quick biography? And I'm hoping that you and I actually have more of a discussion because we've known each other for so long. <laughs> and it feels kind of ridiculous telling you my bio because, you know, I consider you a mentor, so you know some of this bio, but I guess other people don't. My name's Tanya Tarr. I live in Austin, Texas. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I grew up around politics, and I grew up in a really conservative Republican home, which is hysterical because... The first political campaign I worked on was Al Gore's presidential campaign. <laughs> Not only did I grow up in a very conservative household, Republican household, but I was an evangelical. I went, I was a part of a church. I was really active in my church. And then I went to college. I went to Carnegie Mellon University. You know, my world opened up a little bit. And I was supposed to go to college and go to law school because I'm half Korean and half Brazilian and children of immigrants do not run off and join the circus that is political campaigns. Good children of immigrants become engineers, doctors, and sometimes lawyers. So I was going to be a sometime maybe lawyer uh, and didn't end up doing that mostly because I couldn't take the LSAT without barfing about halfway through. <laughs> so that didn't happen. But in the meantime, I had definitely gotten bitten by the campaign bug. And so even though I, you know, finished my bachelor's degree at Carnegie Mellon, I took an accelerated master's program. You got to understand this was the late 90s. My friends were graduating and becoming paper millionaires. <laughs> and here I am sitting there going like, what am I going to do with my life? So I just, oh, let's get more school. So I got a master's degree. I was supposed to go and work for one of the big management consulting firms. Again, decided <laughs> to join the circus which came in the form of working for the New York State Assembly for a year 
went back home to D.C. and worked with military families for a little while and some national defense stuff, but couldn't help it. Nathaniel, I couldn't help it. I had to follow my heart, which was to work at the DNC. And then I worked on Tim Kaine's election for governor in 2005, which was an incredible election and an incredible campaign to learn on. And then that's actually how I got recruited two weeks before the election. I got a phone call from the AFL-CIO. And so that's how I got pulled into organized labor, which then was my professional home for another decade. I guess that's the first part. Because I like to joke that I'm in retirement from politics. <laughs> so, Tanya, as a suggestion, since you wanted to have some back and forth, yeah, I heard that first stage from you. Let me ask you a couple questions about the first stage, and then we'll continue to the the retirement. Yeah, <laughs> the second career. Yeah, absolutely. Ask me questions. Yeah. So I did not grow up in a conservative, Republican, evangelical home. I grew up in a Jewish, liberal, Boulder, Colorado home, which seems probably different. What is left of that upbringing politically? I will say that there were certain values that were instilled in me. I'm also a lifelong Girl Scout, and I actually think being a Girl Scout shaped me in really positive ways my entire life. I don't identify as a Christian these days, but uh, I am a deeply spiritual person and I appreciate some of the core values, the true values of what Jesus Christ came to teach us of taking care of each other and things like that, that I feel like were part of why I decided as a, an adult, I think I'm actually a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. Cause I look at how the two parties were acting and moving and, you know, Jesus Christ was the original community organizer, right? And, and there are people that have different interpretations of that. But I just sort of fell on the side of supporting Al Gore and then kind of never looked back. For a long time, I felt my strategic skill set as an organizer and as a member of the movement was being able to talk to other populations that other people may not be able to. So I could speak conservative, so to speak, right? And I could understand their psyche. And by psyche, I mean sort of like understand their preferences on opinion polls and understand how to better message to them in a more persuasive fashion. And I understood how to approach different communities, including conservative communities, and have a conversation where we could actually build trust and persuade them to vote for people they wouldn't normally vote for. And that certainly came to bear uh, here in Texas. I was on the East Coast for most of my life. And then in 2009, I moved to Texas to be the political director for, mobilization director for the Texas American Federation of Teachers. And that was quite an experience. It was quite an experience of learning how to organize uh, in very, I, I think of it as asymmetric war after we got Obama elected, but I'm still out in kind of the wilderness in a state that where collective bargaining is illegal. My tools were not shiny and fancy. The most effective tools for, for getting our members to participate, to volunteer, to vote, and to participate in the legislative process. Nathaniel, they were like handwritten postcards, right? Robocalls. We still use robocalls and they were still effective in a sandwich program, voter contact program. But I got a bunch of really conservative North and West Texas classroom teachers to vote for Wendy Davis. And they would actually tell me 
afterwards, they took me aside at, at one of our conventions, a couple of them and said, I'm really pro-life, but I decided to support Wendy Davis because of what y'all told us about her record. <laughs> so like the ability to speak conservative, it was helpful. And I was putting it in service of, of trying to help the school children of Texas. And I feel really good about that. How about the thread of mixed Brazilian and Korean? I have a soft spot for mixed as I have children of that sort and many friends. But how did that shape you? Yeah, I've said this at like different API kind of gatherings and stuff. Like if you grow up in an Asian, of any Asian type household, I think the same to some extent is true for the Brazilian side of my family. But I mean, culturally, they're very different, right? Like culturally, they're wildly different. My family that's on the Brazilian side, they are Finnish immigrants to Brazil. So they're Caucasian. They are white Brazilians. My grandmother's like never been to Finland and all of my cousins are very Latino in their engagement style. So they're, you know, boisterous, they're gregarious. It takes three hours to say goodbye to anybody. They're very emotionally demonstrative and they hug and, you know, ask you how you're feeling and want to know and all these other things. Whereas the Korean culture is a lot more reserved. So I guess the, the takeaway here, not to get super specific on those particular cultures, but the takeaway here is that since I was very, very small, I lived in spaces. Where, there are four languages spoken in my household, English, Korean, Portuguese, and Spanish. It's very confusing. My father actually was born in Peru and his first language is Spanish. And they spoke Spanish in the house for a long time and Portuguese. Uh, and I grew up in DC where it's super, super diverse. So I had a ve very <laughs> myopic view of how the world should be that it should be super diverse and that like half your friends and people you know should be immigrants and that like speaking different languages is no big deal. But I think if I kind of zoom back, I think it made me a really effective organizer because I'm particularly my Korean heritage because it's drilled into your head to respect your elders. <laughs> it's also drilled into your head to take care of the team, you know? And I think that served me really well in approaching many different communities with enormous amount of respect and to understand that I'm always an ambassador to some extent, that I'm a guest in someone's house. And it helped me be really observant too. What am I seeing? What's the dynamic going on? And then just being respectful of that, but also just always always to ask questions, always to be curious. What, what is going on here? I actually think a lot of Anthony Bourdain and his approach, total radically different industry. But if you watch his, his television shows or whatever, I was, I've always been impressed by the way that he was like, you, it, you have to pretend someone's grandmother is feeding you, I think is what he said in one show. Like there's always this approach of ambassadorship, but also you're a guest in someone else's house. And so like, be respectful. And I think that was really important. It made me a very good organizer. I was an ER data scientist. They didn't, they didn't call me a data scientist, but I was doing data stuff before it was like a, a thing that it's become. And it gave me a different lens to look at data and patterns that I think other people might not have, right? To understand these segments and populations and how are they behaving and what are, what, what are their opinions and to put that into deeper context. I'm talking too much. I said that I want to go back and forth. You lied to me. <laughs> I, yeah. Sorry. It's yeah, okay. I, you have, you have plenty to say, I think. Um, <laughs> you've kind of alluded to becoming politicized, that process in college 
of turning to the progressive side, to becoming uh, more interested in politics, perhaps, than the legal career or management career or whatever. Can you point to a turning point or what was that process? Nathaniel, I was a nerd. I went to Girls State and Girls Nation. Like I went to Boys I, State, yeah, but so I didn't know, do much there. But yeah, I had a, I had a great time. In fact, like when I was small, when I was four or five, I remember my mother telling me a story about how I really wanted to be a lawyer. Could not spell it, but I knew I was going to be a lawyer. I had a tiny little brief. I, I dressed up as a lawyer for Halloween. Nathaniel, when I was like five, I had a tiny briefcase. It was ridiculous. No, I thought I was going to run for office. I thought I was going to go to college, go to law school. So you were, so you were political way back. I, I, since, yeah, since yeah. I was very small. I mean, some of my first memories were watching Reagan on the news and stuff and being afraid of getting blown up for nuclear, because of nuclear war. Um, but you can't get away from it in DC. It was just, but, in the but if you came from a conservative Republican household and then you go to work for the labor movement ultimately and for democratic campaigns and so on. There's, there's a change there. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I think there's a way to understand your community and your heritage and be respectful and then also just disagree with them. I think abortion reproductive rights was always a big issue. I've always been a deep feminist. I think that Girl Scouts had a lot to do with that. I don't think any of the women in my family would identify as being feminist, quite the opposite. But yeah, I think Girl Scouts gave me a sense of purpose and resiliency that I can just figure out anything. And also, I just, I don't know, girls are better. Sorry, guys. You guys are great, but girls are better. <laughs> what was it about the LSAT? I think it was the word games. There was a section I could never, I could never ace. And I, I have a pretty pronounced psychosomatic response to things. I knew I could never hit the score that I wanted to. And I just got really nervous. And then, because I'm good at management, I started timing my barfing breaks. Because they give you a little break in the middle. So I was like, well, if I could just manage this, then I could just barf right then and then get it over with it and go and finish the logic games. It was ridiculous. It was terrible. Awful. Ah, That sounds like such a challenge. What was your master's in? I have a master's degree in performance measurement and uh, public policy and management. So the focus there was to understand human behavior within the context of organizations. I mean, some private, some uh, public, but the point is to understand individual performance within a larger organization, how to create policies that help drive positive, useful behaviors, how to understand evaluation and metrics and measurement in ways that don't create distortion yeah, I was pretty well set up to like go and <laughs> help evaluate bunches of organizations. And I did that. And that and databases. I was really good at databases. It set me up well with this super niche skill set coming into democratic politics. It, it was it was really bizarre. And I and I, I remember in those early days having to really explain to a lot of leadership what it was that I could do because they didn't really know. <laughs> well, why do you think of it as a circus? It's a constant circus. There's something blowing up. It's a three ring circus. There's lots of big personalities. Between 2007 and when I left the Texas AFT in 2015, I was on the road probably 65, 70% of the time. So, you know, it's like a traveling circus. And actually the very first job I had was to do advance for Al Gore. So that really is like the circus, right? 
super fancy, advancy, pantsy people, right? You get your suitcase and your go bag and, you know, hit the road. What do you remember most about that, the advanced stuff? (laughs) You learn the ability to improvise, which is good. You learn the ability to um, be present. I'm a big fan of a good roll of duct tape. Is that for taking the candidate and restraining him from misbehavior? <laughs> no, it's usually no, it's usually <laughs> tape, tape down like stray wires and stuff so people <laughs> trip. But that's you know, a relief. I mean, advance really felt like it does feel like the circus. They're kind of like the rock stars, right? Because they're hitting the road and it's all exciting, and you're putting on events and everything's live. And I did a lot of advance. When did I start working for them? 2007, I started working for AFSCME, the American Federation of State County Municipal Employees, their international office in D.C. And when they commit to an endorsement, they turn the entire building out. And so we at first were endorsing Hillary. So I was on the road from 2007 to the very bitter end of that primary season. So I was on the road for like a long time. And then, of course, everybody endorsed Obama. And then a bunch of us got deployed out again. And, you know, just being aware of stuff like the camera angles and the press cutaway and are the signs there? <laughs> like, Do we see ask me green? It feels a little bit like a circus and it's fun. It's exciting. It's exhausting, but it's fun. So this is a big part of your life, the stage where you were in politics. When you look back on it, what did you like, love, hate? Like love, hate. That's a lot. That's all the things. Can I ask you, what did, what did you, I mean, you're not entirely retired, but like what, I'm curious about you. I've never been in politics. So what? I mean, I've been, I've run a political software company. I've been on the staff of a presidential campaign in a technical capacity, but I, I don't, I've never been an operative in the political sense, the way you were. I was just a little organizer, research analyst, whatever, but yeah, I mean. Also, I would be remiss if I did not mention to you that when you were on Hillary's campaign, I remember distinctly a conversation you and I had in your office. Podcasts had just started. And I said to you, these podcast things are crazy because it's a person's voice and and like it totally triggers a different perception. And you laughed at me. So it's hysterical that the two, two of us are now talking on your podcast. I deny that conversation ever took place. I don't remember it. It's funny because... There's a lot of things I came late to, you know, that I heard about along the way that I wish I had picked up when some smart person mentioned them to me. But this is just another example. (laughs) This is not answering your question, but we'll come back to it in a second. It's been pretty fascinating to look back at how technology has radically changed what we do because smartphones really change the way that people get information, have any deliberative interaction and things like that. It's not that long ago that I was sitting in your office, but smartphones hadn't entirely blown up the same way. Podcasts had definitely not taken over like they have now. And I don't know if it's taken over exactly, but you know what I mean? It was like- It's just one of a million ways in which we are able to connect, produce content, yeah, relate but, to each other. Well, the relate to each other piece is important, right? Like, and I remember at the time when I brought this up, what I had an inkling to, and now I actually know the science that 
verifies this hypothesis that I had. It's a different interaction to hear somebody's voice than to read text or to interact on social media via text versus video, you know, and how the people receiving the information feel about you or trust you. And I'm just going to point this out as a big flaw. I've had this conversation with a bunch of our friends, veterans of the industry. Like there are technologies that have evolved to play the game of political campaigns, but the mechanisms that drive persuasion and trust building have not changed. Because they're just human. Because we're here. Yeah. And and actually haven't changed in like a couple thousand years, to be honest. So to build trust with another human being and to persuade them to take action, that dynamic has not changed. And the technology I feel moves further and further away from really important drivers that create trust and create community. It it depends on how you use it. You got some people using it for relational organizing and, you know, deep canvassing and all this stuff, right? There's a deficit in traditional organizing that is hurting us. Okay. And the point I'm trying to make here is that the one-on-one conversations are the most persuasive intervention we can ever create. And because of the pandemic and an increased use of technologies that are not blended well with the traditional organizing models, this is a problem. This is a huge problem. React to this. Politics is different now than it was in the 2000s. It is darker. It is more dangerous. It is more risky to the Republic than it was back then. True or false? We have people now who are act who are actively anti-democratic. We have people proposing political violence. We have insurrections trying to stop the certification of a president. We have election deniers running for and winning nominations and probably offices all over the country. I mean, the Bush second invasion of Iraq was probably our worst foreign policy mistake in the history of the country. And bad things were happening in previous administrations, but there's something worse now, I think. The way I would see it if I was still in politics, which I am not, I am retired, but if I was still in politics, the way that I would look at this problem and construct the problem space is to say, actually, the stakes are higher. Okay. The stakes are higher. There is no persuadable independent voter. I think that's a myth these days. People have made up their minds. They are either high information voters or low information voters. And given that that is the case and that the stakes are higher, it means it's more difficult to connect and persuade people, right? Because they've already made up their minds. So how do you get in there and have conversations? And it is conversations, right? With people, this is where the messenger is vitally important. And I think sometimes we don't fully think about that. This is a little bit of an adjacent thing, but I was in an improv class that I'm, the comedy improv class that I'm taking. And there was this gentleman who's a retired Air Force. uh, Are you funny? Am I funny? I have my moments. (laughs) moments. Uh, You have to be funny and improvise and also find moments of joy when you work in any field, but particularly in politics, particularly when you're, you're in the middle of nowhere, Iowa or Nevada or something like that. And everything looks pretty grim. Like being able to maintain a sense of humor is really important. It's really important for your mental health, but it's important for your team too. But this, this gentleman, like 
I remember having a conversation with him about how, cause he was feeling discouraged. He lives in the panhandle of Texas. And I was like, listen, like you've got to keep doing what you're doing. I said, you really have to keep doing, you have to keep doing your humor. He also had this way of being very, I, I call it like healthy masculine. Like he would create a sense of safety and stability versus like toxic masculinity. So my point though here was that I was encouraging him to keep doing his humor because he could reach people that someone like me, I couldn't reach, you know what I mean? Or someone who was a queer black radical person couldn't reach that same population. And I think when I look at how we've become polarized and particularly when I look at social media, there's a couple of things. One is that the messenger really matters and we have to locate and support messengers that can find and reach the people who might be persuaded by the highly radicalized, violent people in this country, right? I can't do that. You probably can't do that. But if we're finding folks who are able to have that conversation and do that important persuasive work, I think that's part of how we bring ourselves back together. And I think the other piece of it is internally to the, anyone left of center, we're pretty fractured. We haven't come together back into a big tent that used to exist. Um, and I don't, I don't know if that's even possible these days because I've been out for so long. Well, l- let me ask you that about being out. You're clearly a little resistant to talking about the specifics of some of, of your political past, but you're willing to talk about some of the theory why did you leave politics if it was something that you cared about so intensively for so long? Yeah, I thought I was going to be a lifer, first of all. I thought my life's purpose was to get a woman into the White House. That was a goal to serve on a campaign to make that happen. So what happened was I got burnt out. And I got burnt out professionally. I got burnt out personally. 2014 was a really difficult year for me. In the span of about eight months, I had five mentors all die, two suicides, two car accidents, and one heart attack. That's horrible. That two is car just dreadful. Yeah, it is horrible. Two car accidents and uh, and one heart attack in her sleep. She, my, my, the president I was working for, Linda Bridges, who was an incredible, incredible human being. That will shake you up. Yeah, and uh, she was the president of the Texas AFT and. When she passed away, uh, it is difficult work being an organ. I really don't like talking about identity politics. I was raised professionally by a lot of incredible people, a lot of them stern black ladies who were boomers. And on the science side of things, a couple of women of color scientists. And my whole life, they would tell me, first of all, I was grateful they would take me under their wing. But second of all, it was kind of drilled into my head. Just be better than them. Don't argue with them. Just be better than them. Show up, be better, be faster, be smarter, be silent. Don't ever show your emotions. If you've got to cry, go into the bathroom. You've got 10 minutes, cry it out, wash your face, put on eyeliner and lipstick and go back out there. Like this is the mentality, right? I'm, I'm 43. I'm the very, very tail end of Gen X. Um, And that was the mentality. And there were rooms that you and I sat in, like the Analyst Institute when it first got started. It was me and like two other women of color under 40. 
in a room of 50 people. It, it never occurred to me that that should impact how I would be treated, although I, I, I was not treated <laughs> particularly well in some spaces. Uh, and I can't believe I'm even saying this out loud because I don't like talking about this. But I had these incredible mentors like you and other people who I realized looking back would shield me from a lot of shit. They saw something in me and my abilities and hopefully too in my personality and my heart that they thought, okay, this child <laughs> needs to be a part of this process. That go cry in the closet, don't show your weakness or whatever to the to the white male world or whatever you're facing. I think I recognize that in my mother who was a math major and went on to be a math teacher and who would always go poised to the classroom or to relationships running her department or whatever, but maybe show a different side at home. So to a certain extent, I was raised around that, you know, even if maybe it wasn't quite relevant to me the same way. Do you think that the changes that have come where we're more open now in a lot of spaces about privilege, about the disparity of treatment, about sexism and racism, do you think that, that those have helped? Do you think you've overshot? Do you think... I mean, do you have thoughts about about the evolution we're going on, which is multi-layered and varied all over the place? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. But let me actually circle back to one of the questions that you asked. That um, The thing that I look back on in that 15, 17-year career, was I made some of the most extraordinary friendships in my life people I'm still very close to some people I only work with for like two years, but like I would literally take a bullet for these people, you know, that I was in the foxhole with in various campaigns. I got to meet some extraordinary human beings. And then also too, I have always had a heart of service, whether it's veterans or municipal workers or school teachers or bus drivers or janitors or whomever it is to have the privilege to come alongside them and help them stand up for themselves was something that got me out of bed every single morning. And also I'm half Korean, but I a hundred percent run on spite as a cultural heritage. <laughs> Koreans what does feisty. that mean? <laughs> Koreans are very feisty people. Okay. Uh, so, you know, listen, the country's been invaded 600 times over the last 1500 years or something like that. It's basically once every couple of years it gets invaded. So we're a feisty Spiteful people. Sarah Palin was enormous motivation for me to get up and work 14 hour days for like six, seven months on end. Like, you know. I, but that will burn you out. 100%. Out. Yeah. yeah. And we, we should talk about that because that's what I do these days. But uh, as I understand burnout, I understand burnout from an individual standpoint and from an organizational standpoint. And that's actually where my work has kind of evolved. And being a data nerd helped me. Uh, squash my own burnout, including squashing type two prediabetes and chronic fatigue. I was not able to get a clear diagnosis. I had to cobble it together and collect my own data and create a baseline. So literally being a data nerd saved my life. So 2014, you said was hard. You lost a bunch of people that mattered to you. Yeah. You, you were not always treated as well as one should be. 
you had some challenges. Yeah, I would phrase it this way, Nathaniel. I had to be more strategic than the average person or more strategic than the average white operative. I had to be more strategic. I had to be more disciplined in my emotions. I had to fight harder. Very often, I'm not going to name names, but uh, I don't forget them. Very often, my ideas would be ripped off. My intellectual property would be ripped off. And, you know, there's an old phrase about if you want to do good in the world and in politics, just don't be focused on getting credit for things, right? It was challenging, but I always had people in my corner. I had mentors. I had friends that I adored, that adored me. And at the end of the day, it was kind of like we were not superheroes exactly, but like we had done what we needed to do and we had gotten someone elected or we had defeated a bad bill. And that was really important and and fueled my heart in a lot of ways. Well, one of the things that I admire about you is the pivot that you made. You restarted really a different career in a, in a different space and seem happy with it. That to me is a a real triumph. Tell me that, tell me that story. Working in democratic politics or working in politics I've said this a bajillion places where they've invited me in to talk to young pup organizers. Politics is a full combat sport. And sometimes it's a full contact blood sport. And I think sometimes, and we've all seen it, people can get caught up in the demands of campaign life and it can absolutely destroy your health, which is what happened to me. And these people, these mentors of mine that I miss so much some of them were victims of depression and heart disease that happened because they had completely dedicated themselves to the work without taking care of their own personal ecology. Do you think that's something that you see more in politics than elsewhere? I've worked with a bunch of different industries at this point. Um, I think that anything that is that creates chronic high stress, so because of the pandemic, So McKinsey actually put out a report in 2021, I believe, where it said that a majority, 56%, I believe, of Americans responded that they felt burnt out. And the Business Insider came out with a poll too, showed that women were were responding to be more burnt out than men, but that even still, you know, a majority of people felt burnt out. Previous to the pandemic might have seen patterns of burnout in certain industries because of the demands of the job. Now it's actually way more widespread because of all the things that we have endured for the last almost three years now. So I think there's more, people are more open to understanding dynamics of the stress cycle, other aspects that lead to burnout. There, I've heard pretty widely different progressive leaders alluding to the problem of staff burning out, of leaders burning out, of mental health challenges in the profession. Do you have suggestions or solutions? Yeah. So progressive politics and it, it does not have the same operational tempo as the nonprofit world, but we have the same sort of funding structures in that there's always kind of a scarcity of resources. So there's definitely evidence of folks in nonprofits having higher instances of, of burnout, right? There's a really important distinction I have to make here, right? Um, a lot of the times people, first of all, throw this word around burnout and not actually understand what it means. 
The WHO, the World Health Organization, has actually characterized burnout as an observable condition. It's not make-believe. Um, and it deals with characteristics of exhaustion and disengagement. But there's a personal burnout that can happen. And then there's a professional occupational burnout, which as defined by Dr. Christina Maslach, who is the first person to coin this phrase burnout, right? So they're two separate things. And I do want to talk about both because I think for leaders and managers, you have to know both sides of this. The other thing too, that really grinds my gears is that burnout is not a mental health issue. Burnout can affect our cognitive function and our executive function, which is what happened to me. So for me, my understanding of burnout and encountering it was, was my physical health was starting to deteriorate. And my physical health was starting to deteriorate as a result of a variety of things. There is sort of personal background. I am a cycle breaker of violence. I've been in therapy for a really long time. I have great tools. And there's very clear evidence on, on the research of this, like the ACEs research, longitudinal research, that shows that if you grew up with certain risk factors, like if you grew up in a violent home or if you grew up in poverty, that, that those conditions will affect your health on the long term, right? That's very evident. But a lot of people, myself included, we came into politics because it's exciting, but also because we want to help people because we've endured some level of just garbage in our lives. And instead of deciding to, you know, take it out on others or develop a substance abuse problem or whatever, you know, workaholism is an ism, right? And workaholism in the service of helping others can deteriorate your health because <laughs> you're not taking care of yourself, right? So for me, the personal side of burnout was I knew my executive function was not working and I had chronic fatigue it's like if I go running, which I had been doing for years, you know, run my three miles on Town Lake, I couldn't get up off the couch for a week. Things that were very observable. And I was taking this to doctors and they weren't asking the right questions because at that, that was 2012, 2013, they, chronic fatigue was still, we still don't totally understand chronic fatigue, but it wasn't entirely known then. But that was basically when my body was starting to give out. And for me, again, because I 100% run on spite, I was like, I'm committed to this, this work that I'm doing. I'm in politics for the rest of my life. And I'm going to figure out how to get well, because I still need to do this work. Right. And so that was the personal aspect of things. And I collected my own observational data and created a baseline and did all that. But so there's, there's like a personal side of things. And the thing that drives me crazy is you don't solve burnout through self-care. Unless you define self-care as what are my habits? How am I taking information in a way that's meaningful so that I can figure out what's working and what's not? And I developed a, a framework around that that I've been teaching folks that has been really effective before we go down that rabbit hole too much. The other side of it is occupational burnout. Burnout in the literature, and I say this as a journalist that writes about this um, in my Forbes column and elsewhere, is that when people talk about burnout right now, most of the time what they're talking about is workload management and really workload mismanagement. And that's not, that's one of six factors that Dr. Christina Maslach figured out in the early 80s, right? So work burnout is a management issue. These two things are separate. Personal burnout and work burnout are separate, but they overlap, What's really irritating me these days is a lot of people say, if you have staff that are burnt out, just give them more pay time off. 
And that does not solve the problem. I want to share some of these other aspects of how burnout is defined in a work setting, right? Work burnout. So Dr. Maslach found that there were six points of fit between a person and their job. And if there's misalignment in these six points, that it would increase the likelihood that they would say that they were burnt out. And besides workload management, there's also a sense of autonomy. Can I make choices about how I do the work? Can I be creative in solving the problems? And also reward and positive feedback from the leadership of your organization, where the worker is thinking, is my contribution at work recognized and publicly praised? Do I receive positive feedback? The other really big one is community. Do I feel like I belong? Do I have a a mutual sense of trust and respect with my coworkers? And then the last two are, the first is fairness and ethics. So are the organizational processes fair and ethical? And is there transparency in how decisions are made? And then the very last one is values, which is people sometimes call it culture, right? So do my personal values align with the organization's values? Do I have a sense of purpose with my work? So what does that translate to if, say, you're running a progressive group and you see what appears to be burnout in your staff or in yourself? I mean, that sounds like make your organization better aligned, but, but, but like what, what, like say you were consulting to somebody who facing that, what, what would you yeah, if suggest I was, that they change? <laughs> well, Nathaniel, I'm not going to be able to give you a cute little tactic that will solve this. Okay. It's a, it's a long conversation. If you have a, a head of an organization that realizes that there is mount, there's bad juju, that there's bad burnout going on, that, that is, first of all, that, that leader needs to understand that if they're serious about solving the problem, that it is going to take a multi-pronged approach that takes time and a lot of thought, right? It doesn't happen overnight. They shouldn't just get rid of all the burned out people and bring in new people to burn out? You know, that is a tried and true aspect of toxic capitalism. <laughs> so that's or toxic politics. <laughs> that's what people do, right? They, they, yeah. they, they will fire everybody or let them go and then bring in young people and burn them out. And it's not a sustainable way and it's not living our values. I think for an, or, for an organizational leader, it would be, you know, definitely have somebody come in and do an assessment, do an anonymous assessment um, where we can ask questions about, do you feel like you have the ability to be autonomous, to make decisions, to solve cool problems? Do you feel a sense of purpose at work? Do you feel like you belong here or you feel a sense of community? Do you feel the leaders understand what you do and value you and things like that? You want to actually do an anonymous survey to get information. You want to make sure too, by the way, I'm writing an article right now about this. It's not just about climate surveys inside of an organization. If you do that, or if you have a feedback mechanism where you tell people to tell you how they're feeling about working there, you must, as the organizational leader, report back what you found because that is transparency, but it also democratizes that action. It's not just the boss is asking us how we feel it's the boss is asking us how we feel. And then the bosses are turning this into a longer discussion where we share with you, this is what you all said. And we want to let you know that we see you and we hear you. And these are the changes we're going to take to fix these problems you've identified. Right now, burnout in the corporate space continues to be accelerated because they're all of these surveillance softwares that have been installed for people working remotely. And also organizations try to do these employee engagement surveys where they're asking people how they feel about stuff and are you likely to quit, which is a terrible question. 
but they'll ask things like that. And then it goes into a black hole. The leadership gets the information, but they never report the information back to the organization. That's just not good. And as an aside, as a goofy aside, Nathaniel, I will tell you that as a point of pride, when I was at Working America, we would do IVRs, these automated robocalls to our members. And we, I, we had an, I don't even remember how half a million people. It was a lot. It was a big membership. And once a year, we would do these IVRs and ask our members to vote on what issue was important to them. And the vendors and people in the Analyst Institute, and this was very early days in the Analyst Institute, they were like, how do you get response rates? We had like really high response rates to an IVR. And the reason for that, I truly believe, is because we would take that information and we would report it back to our members. And then we would take action that reflected that what they told us we were going to take action on. It's very, very basic. And it's not done these days. And it's it's bananas because that technology that lets you get people's opinions, if you don't figure out how to turn that into a conversational loop and be transparent, you're missing an opportunity to build trust. So that would definitely be something that I would tell any leader that came to me and said, my organization's burnt out. What should I do, Tanya? The first is do an employee engagement survey and then have a plan to communicate the results of that survey internally so that people feel like not only are they seen and heard, but that, you know, oh, this is how everyone else is feeling. And then also that the, the leader needs to have an action, an immediate action triage plan, as well as a longer term plan. But I think, too, the reason why I hung into politics for as long as I did, longer than I probably should have, was because of this enormous sense of belonging that I had with my coworkers, right? And a sense of clear purpose, you know, so... Those were real drivers of me sticking around. I, I'm curious about re- the recovery aspect of burnout. In some cases, well, in your case, recovery seemed to have taken place by switching fields. No, but okay. No? I mean, well, <laughs> yeah. it, it's corresponded with that, right? Well, I mean, what do you think is the what do you think is the pattern in how people pass through? a burnout stage in their life into a recovery stage and thriving again, you know, post that feeling? Well, uh, it's, it's not a feeling. It's a chronic condition that ends up destroying your health and destabilizing your life. But uh, and it, 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 that's, that's the thing is, so here's the other piece of it too. Uh, as anyone listening to this, who's like a data person, I call myself a behavioral scientist these days, which I think is kind of hilarious, but also the truest thing that I, that I could call myself truly because I was trained that way. And then I just ended up in politics. Sometimes people don't realize that they're burnt out. So for instance, two of my mentors who were middle-aged men, one was Latino and one was Caucasian, like they were burnt out and they never chose to show up to understanding it. And they chose to, to leave. Okay. And I think that there's a lot of evidence of that in, in the political field of, uh, and lawyers and high stress people, professions that, that there's substance abuse, right? So there's, there are behavioral maladaptive choices that are made because they're not wanting to really understand their burnout or be present to it. And I'm, I'm writing a book about this right now, so I'm, I'm trying to figure it out and trying to, I hate talking about myself, but trying to understand this process because there was an enormous amount of research I had to do myself to figure out my own stuff. And I remember at the beginning being so angry, 
that there just weren't resources that helped me figure this out. So I'm writing this book in service of figuring out, uh, I call them field notes. I think advice tends to be irritating, but field notes can be useful. So I'm writing it as a series of field notes that can help other people that might be going through the burnout process. The very first step is admitting to yourself that you are exhausted and that you're hitting a point where, uh, because when you feel like you're burnt out and when you admit that you burnt out, you've been burnt out for a long time. <laughs> Probably true. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you've been burnt out for a long time. So, uh, you know, and in one of my classes, I talk about functional limits. So a lot of times people talk right now about like boundaries and like know your boundaries and say no and all this stuff. And I approach it a different way. I say, well, what's your upper limit? Instead of boundaries, like what is your upper limit, right? So like one key thing I realized, maybe this is a tactic that's used. One key thing I realized when I still worked in politics was I could work for 14 days straight. But if I work on the 15th day, somebody's going to die. Because you're going to kill them. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm already naturally kind of grumpy, but I will be even more grumpy on the 15th day. So like figuring that out was the first thing. So that's like a functional limit, right? Like I know on the 15th day, I need to not be, I need to have a down day. And so it's sort of like approximation. So you figure out kind of what it is. I'm just it, like you, except I can go about 14 minutes. 14 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then I need a little rest. Then you need a rest. It's good to take rest. Breaks are good. Yeah, there's another little uh, booklet that I'm writing. There's two versions of it, again, because there's personal burnout and there's work burnout, right? So the personal burnout... Um, uh, that distinction is evading me a bit. Is that basically like your whole life versus your work life? Your The way I create a differentiation is sort of like the individual and their private lives and their their health and well-being, right? You, you are an individual, right, out in the world, and, and it affects you as an individual, and then there's work burnout, which is a group of individuals, an organization that you have to deal with and work with other people. So it's sort of like personal is on the individual level and then work burnout is on the group level, right? So I have these two micro books that I'm writing in addition to all these other writing projects. Ah, why? Anyway, 32 micro ways to squash burnout and grow back your happy brain. Because here's the other thing that is irritating to me is that people like to say, just take more rest to fix burnout. And my experience and the science would indicate that actually increasing brain plasticity, in other words, doing new things and learning new stuff and getting weird is actually the way to help your brain recover and your executive function recover from burnout. Not more rest, not more naps. So I'm teaching myself how to play a harmonica and how to like juggle and all these things. And there were things that I did too in that first level of burnout in 2012 and 2013. I crocheted. So now I make and for years, I've made, you know, toys. Oh, and, that's very cute. Yeah, it is very cute, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, the repetitive. Uh, so can you pull this all together? Can you juggle that cute toy while playing the harmonica? You know, I might be able to <laughs> at some point. Not now. Not now. But anyhow, yeah, the, the, the first Because, one, I mean, I could see why that would be restorative. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> for everyone. For yes. In fact, it ought to be prescribed widely. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I like where you're taking this, Nathaniel. I'm totally for it. Yeah, but so the first micro book is 32 micro ways to squash burnout and grow back your happy brain, and and that I'm writing for the individual, and they're all and actually learning how to play a musical instrument or juggle or stuff. Those are some of the recommendations. It's basically a nice, fun laundry list of activities that help your physical, mental, emotional, and cultural health, which I think are all key to your well-being. But the other book that I'm writing for the work burnout is 32 smart ways managers can cultivate joy and belonging. 
because that is actually how. Did you start with 32 and then I'm going to have 32 of these and then try to enumerate them? Or did you just come up with all of them and say, I'm titling this 32 because I count it to 32? Thanks for asking. It's 32. Well, I wanted to do 31 so that someone wanting to find quick tactics could have an entire month's worth of things they could do, right? But the framework that I developed is called- uh, But you just needed one more, or you needed to be a power of two? Well, it's a power of eight, actually, or four. So it's four rooms, and then there are eight options. Um, And so it's 32. Because 31, and then I was like, well, this is so close to 32. But the the framework that I teach- I don't uh, mean to get you hung up on the number, but I'm sure- No, no, but that's that's a great question. So that's why it's 32, though, because it's these four rooms, and I wanted to give eight options. The framework that I teach that- you know, we had about 50 people take this class last year and it was really helpful for them is the house of well-being, right? So this is a framework that I used when I was recovering my own health and learning how to self-navigate, which is really what I'm trying to tell, teach people. I'm trying to give people the tools so they learn how to create their own baseline, how to create habits that are sustaining to them and to their lives and to their communities. And the house of well-being is a framework <laughs> that is kind of ancient in a lot of ways. It's inspired by an Vedic Indian proverb about how we live our lives in a house with four rooms, our physical health, our mental health, our emotional health. And they say spiritual health, but I choose cultural health because I think spiritual is a part of our cultural identity. But those are those four rooms, physical, mental, emotional, and cultural. And a person who moves through those rooms every day on a continual basis is living an embodied and more sustainable life, right? So part of what I realized was driving my burnout was that I was aware of my physical room because I was in acute physical pain. I spent almost all of my time in the mental room, solving problems, doing work, all that stuff. I knew I had a cultural room and occasionally I would dip into it. Listen, I'm half Korean. I got to have my kimchi. Okay. So like I was always kind of in the cultural room and I didn't know there was an emotional room. I didn't know there was a door to it. I didn't know it existed. And if I did, I didn't want to be in it. Like I just very much avoided my emotional room, even though I was in therapy. So that's part of it. And the reason why this framework has helped the students that have come to me that we've been in community together, the reason why I think it helps them is because it's a simple checklist for people to think about how are we living our lives and doing self-inventory is so, so powerful. Because the other big problem, and this is very much, I know this from studying millions of records of voting behavior for all types of populations across these United States for almost 20 years, is that there are population studies that help solve certain problems. But when it comes to an individual who has chronic health issues, all those population studies don't mean squat. They do not help you. When I was sick trying to unravel my stuff, and I had these doctors telling me there was nothing wrong with me, and I knew there was something wrong with me, it was not helpful to look at population studies at all. The only population study that was helpful for me was to find a study that showed that 60% of Asian Americans, any Asian American, runs a high risk of type 2 diabetes. But we are not told that, and we are not diagnosed. They don't ask the right questions because we don't look like other races when we develop type two diabetes. And I, the part of what helped me stabilize my health was I found a healthcare practitioner, a chiropractor who used to be a microbiologist. I love this woman. She's so, she's a scientist, but she, you know, does this 
chiropractic, nutrition, Chinese medicine stuff. Anyhow, she, and this is why I believe, oh, and why I always like say it like a broken record, do your own, like figure out your own baseline. She was the one that asked the right question. She said, we're going to get you to do a blood panel. She was afraid about my thyroid. My thyroid was fine. What was not fine was my hemoglobin A1C. And the hemoglobin A1C is the best test to understand if you have type 2 diabetes. It measures the sugar traveling on your blood cells in a 90-day cycle. People think diabetes, they think the pinprick. No, it's the A1C test. That is what tells you whether or not you have type 2 diabetes. I was average height, average weight, didn't look like I was sick, knew there was something wrong. My A1C was almost 6, which is you're standing at the door of diabetes. That was what was wrong with me. And so this is the thing. I'm going to nerd out for a second, Nathaniel. I can see you getting bored. I'm going to nerd out here for a second. Uh, I'm not getting bored. You're not getting bored. Okay. Uh, I was bored a long time ago. No, I'm just okay, kidding. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Previously, you were bored. Now you're yeah, not. No. So, so here's where data science helped me recover, right, to start that process was I admitted there was something wrong. I got a couple of opinions, didn't agree with them, kept looking, self-research, but then I found this healthcare professional that helped me figure out the A1C piece of it. We ruled out, and that was the other thing, I was just trying to rule out stuff, and we would ruled out all these other things, but the A1C let me know, aha, part of the problem is you are pre-diabetic. So now I had an empirical measure. I had an empirical backstop that I could compare against because I threw the kitchen sink at this, Nathaniel. I was like, I went to an acupuncturist. I had a Western general practitioner. I had the chiropractor. I was definitely in in therapy with a cognitive behavioral therapist. I had a massage therapist who was, it was more like PT, uh, physical. You had a whole team. I had a whole team. Yeah. I organized, I I organized my healing team. Like I used the principles of organizing and I organized my own healing team. But so I had all these things that I was trying to do to help fix my health. But when you are sick with chronic issues, you have to always figure out your own baseline and then compare different types of data. And where you have overlap is where you know you need to go next or keep doing things. So for example, I was, you know, doing physical therapy and acupuncture and I was part of a couple of spiritual communities. And so there are all these things I was doing to restore my health and I had to evaluate them every quarter. And the biggest driver though was, was my A1C going down? The direction of the data is more important than the discrete pieces of the data. If the data is all going positive and I'm feeling better and my health is feeling better, then we're going in the right direction. If the direction is neutral or negative, that tactic needs to be taken out of the mix. But ultimately, the primary goal is, can we reduce Tanya's A1C, right? And we did. I did a bunch of uh, nutrition stuff, and I got certified as a health coach because I was trying to figure out what was I doing because it was ultimately successful. I did squash type 2 diabetes, and my health did come back together. What is your world like now? What, What do you do with yourself, and how's it going? I started writing a column for Forbes in 2016 through the lens of gender about negotiation and leadership. I wrote a lot about equal pay for a long time. And now I'm moving into burnout, burnout mitigation and how to help organizations be better at being sustainable. Cause it turns out if you help make your organization more supportive for women and particularly working moms, 
you create a more healthy organization overall. Like you reduce burnout for everybody. These days, I have a very diverse portfolio of clients. It's all over the map, but it's mostly for-profit organizations and corporations these days. But you know, we've got small to medium-sized businesses to large global corporations, and they engage me to come in and usually deliver workshops, interactive workshops. I'm thankful I was very well suited for the pandemic. I've given probably 150 lectures or keynotes or workshops in the last few years here during the pandemic. People have me come in to do organizational assessments and employee engagement stuff. I work with a lot of executives. So if your organization is trying to have a bunch of executives come together as a team for the first time, it's called chartering a team. They will call me in. I'm a big fan of the DISC communication framework. It's not a personality test. It's a communication framework. And so I'll do a DISC assessment for the executives and it helps them understand each other better. And I've done DISC assessments for organizations as well, but it it helps people understand differences in communication styles. And my days are very virtual. I work from home. It strikes me as a profession that requires a lot of being able to sell yourself. I suspect once you develop a really good reputation, you can get in demand. But it sounds like the kind of thing that it's hard to to like get over the first steps and really start landing a clientele. What was it like? To, as a business for you to to kind of launch and thrive in? I'm very fortunate in that I do have kind of a digital footprint and a lot of great relationships. And, you know, my my company has been, is almost four years old. We have never had to take outside investment or anything like that or take loans out. And we have been successful, but I, I think I'm still trying to figure it out. But a lot of, I think to some extent, being visible and writing a column helps a little bit, but the folks that that book me in to do work, a lot of them are just relationships that I've had for a really long time and developing relationships with people and with organizations and developing that trust and solving problems. You know, <laughs> being an organizer is actually really good sales training. And I don't sell myself, by the way. I sell good science, good practice. I tell clients about problems that I've solved for organizations that are similar to theirs. Do you ever have a hankering for being pulled in by big progressive groups to help them in the I, way that you help others? Or do you do that? Yeah, I, ha- I have actually been booked to, to do facilitation work and, and workshops and, and things like that by progressive organizations and you know labor unions and stuff like that and nonprofits. And on a case-by-case basis, I'll help them out. That's one side of the house. The other thing that I'm working on besides writing, you know, I'm making these micro books and then I'm also writing a a longer form book. uh, And I have classes that we've been teaching. If you go to my website, cultivatedinsights.com, you can sign up for the free burnout recovery class right there on the front page. But so there, there are a set of classes that are being set up next year. I want to develop a community of folks from everywhere where we're meeting once a month to talk about how we're doing. And to spend a year together, uh, you know, exploring habits and different ways, micro moments of joy that we can create for ourselves and to encourage one another to create sustainable waves inside of our own lives and our personal ecology in our homes and in our communities. So the other thing, too, that I want to help popularize and I need to write more about, obviously, is the concept of group care, not self-care, but group care. 
Have you ever heard, Nathaniel, this concept of mirror neurons? I'm so fascinated by them. Mirror neurons? Mirror no. neurons. Yeah. No. So- but I do buy the theory that they're that group care could be a really useful concept and that the health of the group is is something that can be worked on and improved and can be affected in lots of ways, not just the individual. Right. So, and I think that that's the other aspect of things, right? So, and there's a lecture that I talked about, uh, about stress management and so forth. And part of how we grow back our happy brains is by creating a sense of flow and low stakes play. So low stakes play is like uh, when you spend five minutes learning to juggle or you solve a crossword puzzle. And the flow state is when you get absorbed in an activity in such a way that it feels restorative because it is, neurologically it's restorative. But it's not just flow and play by yourself, which would be a form of self-care, right? So for me, self-care is again, like crocheting a small cute bear. That's something I'm doing by myself. It is creating aspects of flow and play, but... I will trade you some of my clay figures for one of your crocheted bears. Yeah, we'll do a swap. I'm into it. Yeah, awesome. Um, Look over here. Yeah. I don't know if you know. I saw. They're incredible. Yeah. I have many. So there's self-care, but there's not been an emphasis on on group care, on finding ways to connect with one another. Because remember how I talked about Dr. Maslach pointing out community and belonging being really important. And people kind of know this, that belonging is important, but the reason why belonging is important and the reason why conversations are so helpful or the reason why dancing with other people or doing a wave in a stadium with other people or chanting with other people, it all creates mirror neurons, okay? When you see someone doing something that you know how to do, it activates a certain pathway in your brain. When you see someone on TikTok dancing in a certain way that you know how to dance or want to dance, it makes you happy because those neurons get activated and you feel a sense of connection to that video. But and it's even more pronounced when you're sitting in a circle with other people in an organization, for example. Some of the greatest pe- leaders that I work for, they would always have a debrief conversation after a really tough campaign. And we would all sit in a circle and they would totally express psychological safety. There's a very smart woman at Harvard that came up with this. My point I'm trying to make here is we would always have a conversation, a group conversation of the department talking about what was good, but what went wrong. And everyone had a chance to talk. So those type of group activities create massive mirror neurons. And the scientists think upon these, these neural pathways travels the emotion of safety and belonging and connection. Dr. Amy Edmondson's amazing. uh, And she's the one that came up with, coin the phrase psychological safety. But my point is that when we have these synchronous activities as groups together, it is very ancient, but it also, it activates a neurological set of impulses that make us feel safe and connected and that we belong. And we do not have that. And we have not had that in at least three years because of the pandemic. Right. And Again, I was in these organizations working in a stressful job because I was working for leaders where I always knew that they were going to take all of us seriously and create a deep sense of belonging. And so burnout, I think, has been characterized as an individual's problem or possibly a management problem. But we have not spent enough attention thinking about as a group and community, how do we solve this together? Because a lot of maladaptive choices, including violence, happen as a result of lack of perceived or actual lack of safety. 
right? Like these people that want to destroy democracy clearly do not feel safe. And their reaction to that is to create violence. And we can't do anything to solve that particular problem for those people. But what we can do is we can gather in people that we love, people that we work with, and find ways to express group care. So this is a very, very simple tactic. And people sometimes have a huge aversion. They hate saying good morning, right? They hate good morning texts, right? They get so annoyed by that. The reality is when you say good morning to somebody or when you ask them how they are, do that simple small talk stuff, you're actually sending a signal that you care. And you're helping create a transition to the day. We are entering into this day together. And I think the other piece of burnout is we don't have transitions. We did not evolve to be constantly on all the time. So when you're saying good morning or you're saying goodbye, good evening, it actually creates transitions that help with your cognitive function. But it also is a way of of connecting and exp- and I remember also that was something that I would always do when I get plopped down into whatever podunk little city to do, you know, some campaign or something is that, you know, you start building relationships with the people in the hotel that you're staying in or with the union leaders that you're trying to work for and with and something as simple as telling people good morning can be a way of expressing group care. And I have for now years, I have on Twitter and on Instagram, every morning, every morning, I say good morning, and I try to share something positive. Every morning. And I do it out of a sense of not obligation, but because I have had people tell me that it helps them to start their day when they see my tweet or my story on Instagram, which is wild. But I am glad that I am there to see them, to help them start their day. It makes me very glad to know that. Sometimes it's pablum stuff. Sometimes it's a picture of a flower from my garden. And sometimes I feel a little spiky. Like today I posted something like, you know, good morning, give this day hell. Be sure to smile with teeth. It keeps your enemies nervous. (laughs) Sometimes it's that kind of stuff. But doing these small and larger things, we might not all be able to sit in a room together in a circle and talk. But we can send group texts and we can post things that say, good morning, hello, we are here together. That is actually incredibly powerful. And not to mention, before 2016, and I've talked to you about this and I've talked to some other people who've been in the business for a long time, after every election cycle, even the nastiest primary, we would always get together as a group, right? We would always get back together. And a lot of places had unity breakfasts after a nasty campaign. Like we had Roots Camp, right? We ha- I'm even forgetting now all the different ways that we would come together, right? And we would talk to each other and we would share stories and we would share tactics sometimes too. And I have some friends that we worked on different candidates' primaries and fought like cats and dogs. But then we get together at those gatherings and get totally, totally drunk, and then remember that we were still friends afterwards. And, and we just haven't, we haven't really done that anymore. That's not a part of the community anymore. And it's, it's, uh, it's bad, <laughs> and, you know. Well, it's, Tanya, it's really interesting to talk to you about something that I really haven't had much chance to talk about with people during the zillions of interviews I've been doing. Sometimes I do talk to someone about, the challenges that they've had in their career. And 
there might be a glancing reflection, but I'm glad we've had the the space to to talk about this to some extent with you. Is there a question that I should have asked you that I didn't? I really miss the work. I miss being in the trenches. I miss being in the field. I miss the extraordinary collegiality that I experienced when I worked in politics. I do not think I am ever going to end up back there again. But I think I'll say something that everybody said that we just have to remember is if you burn out, the movement burns out. If you burn out, the movement burns out. And whether you're a leader or you're just getting started, it's important to think about ways to not just say no to things, but actually to plan your life and design your life in a sustainable way. You know, all of the leaders that did really extraordinary things before us, especially I'm thinking of abolitionists and suffragists and and other extraordinary people that actually did some serious shit in this world and in our country, they had no expectation that they would be alive to see the change. None. A lot of them were very chop wood, carry water, pass it on to the next generation. No expectation of seeing the change. And I think we have all lived through witnessing the end of some very long processes. And it's longevity. Longevity is what helps win this race. So again, if you burn out, the movement burns out. The other thing I would say is that I get annoying because I repeat it a lot, but I don't care because it's funny. And it's true is stay curious, not furious. Do the best you can to stay curious about what's going on. Be furious if you have to, but then as a second look, be curious about what's going on. I like the notion of designing life in a sustainable way. It's a wonderful privilege if you have the time and space to think about that and to make choices that serve you and serve the causes you want to in the long run. And, you know, I'm I'm glad that you're spreading that message. Yeah. Well, and there's a lot of work. So it's not, it's not goof off. It's like, how do we better manage so we can do more cool stuff? Goofing off can be a part of it. Yeah. Scheduled goofing off. I am definitely a proponent of that, as many people know. Tanya, lovely to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? (laughs) I think we said it all. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, and thank you to anyone listening to this as doing the hard work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Tanya Tarr. She's at cultivatedinsights.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.